Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, May 15, 2022. The sheer ID numbers for Friday, May 13th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,957, that's one eight nine five seven and for the ten AM Eastern Big Book Study eighteen thousand nine hundred and fifty eight. That's one eight nine five eight. This morning a vision for you presents Chapter two There is a solution. We come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the feelings of hopelessness the pain, the suffering, the frustration, and the deep despair we experience in our disease of compulsive overeating. As the big book states, we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. Chapter 2. There is a solution, shouts the good news. Great news indeed. There is help. There is hope. There is a way out of compulsive overeating's mad realm. Today we are willing to accept the idea that as far as we are concerned, compulsive overeating is an illness of a twofold nature a progressive illness, which can never be cured, but which, like some other illnesses, can be arrested. We agree that there is nothing shameful about having an illness, provided we face the problem honestly and try to do something about it. There is a solution brings into sharp focus the exact nature of our powerlessness over the merciless obsession and our need for a higher power relationship as our defense against the first bite. Yes, we who have suffered as compulsive overeaters come to OA looking for a solution which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. Chapter 2, reassuringly called There is a Solution, lays out the foundation for the rest of the big book, and the crucial elements of recovery. Yes, there is help. Yes, there is hope indeed. Joining us today to bring to life Chapter 2, There is a Solution, is Larry Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago and a beloved member of A Vision for You and Overeaters Anonymous. Larry is both a student and a teacher of the big book, devoted to living in the solution of the 12-step way of life, which, of course, includes carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great delight and always great appreciation to welcome Larry Kay to the line. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service. Um, uh, It's always a delight. Always, always appreciative to try my best to carry the message, which I will do. Again, I'm Larry Kay. I'm I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm I'm from Chicago, where the weather's really nice. In fact, um, 
I was going to mention before we, we get into it here that I was out taking a walk. It's been so nice here. I was out with my spiritual advisor. And she and I were taking a walk. Uh, she's, a, she's only two. She's a mini golden doodle, and she's the best spiritual advisor. I, I, I have a pretty good sponsor, but, I, but, but as far as spiritual advisors, there's no better than Cherry, my two-year-old, uh, well, my daughter's two-year-old gold, mini golden doodle. And she doesn't say much when we took a walk this morning. She barks every so often, but, but I observe her. And in that sense, um, she really exemplifies and demonstrates kind of, kind of this solution, more at a core level, right? Doesn't need the steps to live in the moment. Doesn't need the steps not to carry resentments and, and, and has, uh, she has instincts like the fear instinct, but it doesn't, doesn't seem in my observation as I'm walking with my spiritual advisor to, uh, to, to be obsessed with, with those resentments. And she has instincts. She's got a social instinct. We're walking. She, if she sees a squirrel or she sees a small little dog, she's all at 15 pounds. Um, she has that social instinct to interact. They don't, the squirrel doesn't want much to do with her. Now, if she sees a bigger dog, she does have a fear instinct that will absolutely operate uh, on her as God, I believe, intended it to. And she'll maybe feel a threat, whether it's real or not. She's built into her DNA to be cautious, right? But I observe her, and she lives in the moment. And if I, I, I was actually, I'm in my flip-flops, and I was running a little bit because I know she likes to run. And she just, if, if she could be smiling, picture her. She's a black mini golden doodle. There's not a, I don't know where the golden is, but, and she'll run for a little bit and she's excited to run. And then she'll stop and she'll smell the flowers. No, literally she'll smell the flowers. And then she's over here and then she's over there. And you talk about living in the moment and you talk, if she could smile, I don't know what a dog's smile looks like. Perhaps you do, but I tell you that I observe this, this spiritual creature and she seems happy and she seems content. And when I feed her, she eats. Oh, she enjoys her food. And, and then when she eats, after a little while, she becomes disinterested in it. Boy, is she a wonderful example of, of, this, uh, of, of the way to live life. She's in the moment. So this morning, you know, with God's grace, I, I, I'm hopeful anyway that I could have the opportunity to be of service to you. In that, I'm going to do my best to help you to gain some clarity and understanding on, on some critical concepts, and we'll dive into the solution. But the first concept is about alcoholism, or in our case, compulsive overeating. You know, uh, what, what is it? I mean, we'll get into the book, believe me. What is it? Understanding what it is and getting an opportunity to diagnose yourself. In other words, do you have this problem? You know, what's wrong with me? And is what's wrong with me compulsive overeating? And how would I know? And on what basis do I arrive at that conclusion? And the second concept, once I understand the problem, is what is the solution to that problem? And, of course, we're going to emphasize the contents of Chapter 2 this morning. You know, if you have this problem, if you've diagnosed yourself as such, what's the solution to the problem? And the third concept is a critical one indeed. It's how, how then am I going to bring that solution to light? In other words, another way of saying, how do we manifest that solution in our lives, this spiritual solution, which, of course, uh, we've learned that is all about action. 
taking these actions. And so those are the three things you're going to need for recovery. And I, I, I would quite frankly say those are the three things that, that anybody in the world needs to, to, to solve any problem they're faced with. What is the problem? What's the solution to the problem? And how do you bring that solution to light? Because if we don't understand the problem, any road will get us somewhere, right? I think I heard Leah say something to that, that effect, but she, she said it much more eloquently than I could. So for me, one of the defining features of having this disease is that it was like a fire hose of tiny humiliations, you know, and I was getting blasted daily on a daily basis in the face. And it never allowed me, those tiny humiliations never allowed me to look away. Even when I, I, I really desperately wanted to look away. But I found it humiliating to be overweight, for example. And yes, I was getting bigger and bigger. But I'll tell you something else. I also found it humiliating to be worried about being overweight. I found it humiliating to be worried about stopping the bulimic exercise and other restrictive measures. I found that humiliating. But in my, you know, very much delusionary existence at that time, I didn't want to be seen as wanting to lose weight or seen as engaging in bulimic behaviors, even by myself. Because the more I ate, the more I needed to eat. And we begin to eat to kill the pain of what we were eating. And this cycle is an endless loop of misery and, and further humiliation. And so like uh, millions of others, I just resigned myself at some point to the idea that, you know, I'm going to have to count calories and, you know, take the latest potion, employ the latest uh, fad diet, uh, burn calories through the likes of starvation and restriction and exercise always in a constant state of misery until, of course, you know, everything seemed to be back under control. And it never was. It was a perpetual delusion that I could dig myself out of this cesspool of existence, which was my life. And now, you know, the thing is, because I believe that there's been an incredible watering down of the basic message over the course of time that OA has been in existence, which is what, 60 plus years. There has, what I feel has infiltrated, kind of leaked into our rooms, not, not, not envisioned for you so much. That's why you have so many people that are attracted to this study. But, but overall, what's been infiltrated into our rooms is an immense amount of misinformation regarding the solution around these three concepts. What is the problem? What is the solution? And how in the heck am I going to bring that solution into my life? How does it get manifested? And that misinformation, that watered-down message regarding what it takes to recover, considering the fact that we're dealing with life and death, right, when it comes to this disease of compulsive overeating and other kinds of addictions, that erroneous information is, serves to do more than just be kind of a disadvantage or a detriment to you. It may serve to assist in killing you, and therefore, it's deadly information. It's grave. So it's going to be absolutely essential that we share what the truth is. What are the facts? What is recovery? What isn't recovery? What is the solution? What isn't the solution? And I want to be clear when I say the facts, 
I'm not talking about Larry's opinion. I have some opinions, so you can, you know, I'll be happy to share those with you. No problem. We all have opinions. Don't get me wrong. And you could distinguish what you think of me or how much stock you place in my opinion. And, and of course, do what you want with, with such information. But here's the thing about opinions in the, in the, in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. They're, they're opinions, right? And, and not only are they opinions, but you're getting the opinions of compulsive overeaters and addicts. Now, I'm not here to disparage the opinions of addicts. I love the addicts on the line here. I'm not suggesting that compulsive overeaters don't occasionally have decent opinions. I might have one or two, not many, but I might have one or two. I'm quite sure you do as well. Yet what, is, what I can unequivocally tell you is that opinions in these rooms are not going to get you well. In fact, history shows that nobody's opinions are going to get you well. And, and frankly, the opinions of compulsive overeaters are, are you know, it's not like they're ter terribly hard to come by, right? We, we can go to any donut shop or fast food joint and, in town for that. But see, the idea for the 12, a 12-step meeting like this one is not for you to get people's opinions. And with that said, you'll find OA besieged, AA2, with people who will give you authoritative and well-intentioned opinions. And here's what they'll do. They'll frame those opinions as fact. They will say something that sounds good, maybe even sounds reasonable, but what they say oftentimes doesn't correspond with what's in the text. And that, my friends, is gonna be very dangerous for someone who's early in recovery, I can tell you that. And frankly, it's just as dangerous for someone who's been untreated in a way for years. So what we're going to concentrate on this morning are the facts from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's our basic text. And we're going to pay particular emphasis to Chapter 2, There is a Solution. Now, when we look at the title, there is a solution, right? Uh, you know, for thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years prior to, let's call it, let, let's use May 12, 1935. That's when Bill first met Dr. Bob Smith in Akron to carry the message of recovery to him. But we, we could go with sometime in, 19, in the 1930s when Bill had his white flash spiritual experience in Towns Hospital. We could probably go before that and connect with Roland Hazard and meeting with Dr. Young and, and then later connecting with the Oxford group. But the point is, is prior to those things, Prior to those events, human beings had no solution for the malady called alcoholism. If you were cursed with this affliction, you were screwed. And because this problem was so misunderstood for centuries, if you had this thing called alcoholism, there was a pretty good chance, I'd say close to 100% chance, that not only would society have viewed you as being morally uh, deficient, that you were thought to be morally defective and maybe even unworthy of help. So, of course, your chances of dying of untreated alcoholism were excellent, excellent indeed. And, 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 and through a series of what I've come to believe were divine, sort of divine circumstances, Bill was exposed to a real solution to this malady. And for the first time in history, in the history of the world, Bill had actually recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. 
And it was a spiritual solution born as the result of the implementation of a series of actions. And as a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Jung mentions this. Dr. Carl Gustav Jung mentions this as he replied to a letter that Bill Wilson sent him in 1961. Bill sent Dr. Jung a letter to kind of pay homage, to acknowledge and pay tribute to him for his contribution to the development of this solution. But of course, Jung had no idea at that point when he got that letter. Because Dr. Jung, what he did is he described the craving for alcohol as the equivalent of a spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness, sort of a union with God, that there was a thirst for this. And he, he went on to say that such an experience can only happen when we walk on a path that leads to a higher understanding, to a higher level of consciousness, to a level of higher consciousness. And Jung referred to that higher consciousness as an act of grace, sort of unearned, if you will. And let's also pay homage to a book mentioned in, in, the, in, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, William James, of course, the, the, the preeminent psychologist, wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience. It was published in 1902. And I, and I, and I couple this together with Jung because he basically, James, was considered a great thinker in the, in the early 19th century. Uh, rather the late 19th century. And in a nutshell, though, what James' research on the manner in which human beings from all walks of life came into to have some sort of spiritual transformation, he researched this. And he did a series of lectures, they call it the Gifford Lectures. And what he concluded was that spirituality was limited, was, or rather wasn't limited to kind of like a specific religious road, if you will, Rather, there was any number of ways in which human beings were able to become aligned with the higher power of their own understanding, and that once one was able to separate from the, I guess, the, sort of like the dogma that surrounds various beliefs about a higher power, people's lives can change in the most miraculous, incredible ways. And what gets cultivated in these people is amazing insights as to how to live their life as part of that transformative deal. And that, that's essentially, it's a big book and it's, you know, a tough read. But, but before we dig into some, some of chapter two, let's acknowledge some basic lineage because it's important. Roland Hazard, who after his extensive treatment with Dr. Jung, it's mentioned in this chapter, he had two stints, as a matter of fact, in the, the late 20s, early 30s with Dr. Jung, and he became convinced that he was utterly hopeless to find a self-knowledge cure for this, this sort of out-of-control alcoholism. And, and not long after the second stint with Dr. Jung, he comes in contact with the Oxford Group. That association and the, and the subsequent actions that he took released him from the grips of this disease. Roland then carries the message of spiritual transformation to Ebby Thatcher. Thatcher gets sober, is called to carry the message, and he does so to Bill Wilson. Then in May of 1935, Bill, who's now well, carries the message to Dr. Bob. And soon after, Dr. Bob and Bill carry the message to alcoholic number three, Bill Dotson. And, su and subsequently, they, they, they carry it to countless others. And in 1959, 1960, uh, Roseanne 
gets a whiff of this message of spiritual transformation. And she eventually recovers. And here we are in 2022, a product of, the, of what? Of the spiritual lineage of recovery. It's like we're part of a tapestry of interwoven, you know, like recovered hands that are reaching out to the next wounded soul to pull them up from the quicksand. And as long as that, you know, we have this salvage operation, as long as the recovered are enthusiastic enough to keep diving into the pit of addiction, well, then nobody has to die of this seemingly hopeless condition. We pull them into the boat, and what we do is we teach them how to row. And if we look at God's grace, it really appears almost out of the ashes by some divine miracle. And AA emerged in the midst of the Great Depression, and it you know, it took root, and it started with the Oxford Group. And, you know, and, and, um, and so as we delve into this, into this, I'd like to draw your attention, you know, to, you know, in some way what Joe and Charlie, if you know these guys, these were also big book enthusiasts. Harlan, he's a big book enthusiast. Leah, these are people that turn me on to the big book and what it may mean in terms of the text in transforming me. They've drawn, they've drawn my attention over the years to this fundamental concept. They speak of two powers. There's the power of the fellowship and the power of the program of action. And they are not the same thing. They inform each other. They're both essential in your recovery journey, but they are highly distinct in terms of what their purpose is. Because what we will learn as we get into the text is the fellowship alone is not sufficient. I can get sober on the love and support of the fellowship, but I cannot stay sober unless I have the practical program of action. I can only stay sober on the practical program of action steps. And I don't say this in a flippant manner. People in the fellowship, in the fellowship, are dropping like flies. I, I mean, I hope you recognize that. And even though people in the rooms are suffering in their disease and dropping off the planet like flies, we do spend a considerable amount of time and effort trying to attract those from outside the rooms. You know, we're looking to save people from outside these rooms. And they, they, either they haven't shown an interest in the spiritual solution, maybe they haven't been exposed to it, okay? Yet in our midst are people in the rooms who are dying. In chapter 2, there's a solution. Let's look at it. Page 17. Okay, page 17. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. Where average Americans, all sections of the country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. And we're people who would normally not mix, right? And, and that is true, you know, we're, they, we're, we're people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We're like passengers. We're the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. table. In the early 1900s, the big mode of transportation was the great ocean liner, right? 
and, and, and we've all heard of the, of the Titanic, you know, the unsinkable British uh, passenger ship, right? And it struck an iceberg during its maiden voyage in April of, of uh, uh, I think it was 1912. It was, it was traveling from the UK to New York City. Now, steerage was for passengers like, I don't know, like me or, or, or Charles or Harlan, you know, the jlubs who, who could barely afford the fare, were dressed in our, our finest potato sacks. You know, so you've got to be comfortable in the steerage. It's not, the, you know, the, the finest place to be. In fact, so there we are. <clears throat> and uh, in fact, that night, you know, let's say uh, Charles and I saw an iceberg in the distance, but we were convinced that it was like a, a huge mound of rock candy. Remember rock candy? Anyway, we were distracted by its beauty and, and our mouths were uh, salivating. <laughs> and now, now only the rich jet setters get to sit at the captain's table. So that Bill uses that. And, and, and they weren't dressed in potato sacks. You know, they, they, they were in sparkly evening gowns and the men were in tuxedos and black tie. And so basically you got, I don't know, you got like Leia and Penny and Melanie and I don't know, maybe even Craig, he was up there. I mean, you know, these types of people, you get, you get the picture, right? <laughs> and so hopefully you see my sarcasm, my joke. But now we hit that big chunk of rock candy and it's immediate terror and it's a terrible disaster. And now the steerage people are trying to get onto to one of the only like 20 lifeboats. And just as the captain's table people are desperately trying to save their own lives as well, and, and unfortunately there was only enough room for about half of the passengers, and, but we all helped each other. We, you know, get in the boat. And so here's the interesting detail that still amazes me. You know, Leah, she didn't ask me for a financial statement when I was getting, you know, on board. She didn't, she didn't ask uh, for me to recite verses from the Torah before I got on the boat. And as far as I remember, you know, you know, Craig or someone didn't ask anyone for the name and address of their confirmation sponsor. And Penny didn't require that I be a, a Red Sox fan to get, on the, to get on the boat, even though I'm in my potato sack. Now, Harlan, he asked people, you know, to, to name the shortstop of the Cubs, but he was just trying to, you know, calm people down and make conversations. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know, no one thought much of that. But the point is, is absolutely, it goes on. The moment after rescue from shipwreck, there was camaraderie. We're excited. There's joyousness. It wasn't rock candy. It was an iceberg, but we, we've been saved. And there was democracy among those who were saved from steerage to captain's table. And unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. But it goes on to say that that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. And if you look at the bottom of 17, there's a great little formula at the bottom of 17, and I. I really feel like every newcomer should be introduced to this page because it tells us what our common peril is. In other words, having shared an active addiction, in our case, food, that represents only one element in the powerful cement which binds us together. And again, how critical it is to understand that fellowship alone is not gonna solve the problem. 
In fact, it is both the common peril that is coupled with the common solution that binds us together. So that really what we're saying here is fellowship without steps is a half measure at best. And we know what Bill says in the chapter, how it works with regard to what half measures avail us. Not much, not much. In fact, nothing. And this is what's meant by that, that if we don't work the steps and all we do is don't eat and go to meetings, we're not going to get the desired result. And I want to repeat that. We are not going to get the desired result. And again, is that my opinion? No, it's a fact. How do we know it's a fact? Because it's in the operator's manual. It's in the text called Alcoholics Anonymous that we lovingly refer to as the big book. So the bottom of 17, it says the tremendous fact for every one of us is we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news the book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. There's the great news. So the, the great news we have to carry is not that we lost weight, not that you fit into a, you know, a size five, none of that. That's all wonderful. But the great news is that we have had a spiritual transformation as the result of the steps that did a couple of things. First, it removed our obsession to eat compulsively. And the rest of the changes that unfold were merely byproducts of God's grace over time. And all the while, I expected an immediate change so that my life would go from misery to perfection. It was never a promise. So page 18, and I'm going to you know, jump around a little bit. I'm going to go in sequence, but I'm going to not hit every word on this. But page 18, they mentioned that highly competent psychiatrists who have dealt with us have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss his situation without reserve. <clears throat> Excuse me. Strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor. But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. I want to tell you about one of the smartest people I've ever had the privilege of, of, of knowing and, and befriending. And she's currently a professor at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And she's not one of us. And I've known this professor for a number of years. And I, and I don't say this lightly. She's, she's a brilliant woman. I've met some brilliant women. There's some of them are on this line. I mean, they amaze me. This woman's brilliant. She's, she, she's actually been a research fellow at universities, including currently Dartmouth, uh, during her professional career. And she, what she has is the unique ability to see the most complex problems, mathematical in nature or otherwise, and through sheer skill, skill that I do not have, frankly, she has this ability to evaluate the problem, examine various alternative solutions, you know, quickly decide on the best one definitively and then implement that solution. And it's really ex an extraordinary gift 
to be able to analyze a problem, break it apart, and then rebuild it, synthesize a solution so rapidly. And, and you know what? She's paid pretty handsomely to do this, and she's paid by our government to do this. Now, why am I mentioning this woman that's not one of us? If I had my friends sit down with you and help you to find a solution to the problem of compulsive overeating, you know what would happen? It would be an absolute exercise in futility. She would be utterly useless to you in terms of solving this problem. And, and here's why. She can't grasp why you can't stop from starting, nor could she understand why once you start, you can't stop. Because every time she eats anything at all, she quickly grows disinterested in eating more once she's satisfied. She's not now, nor, nor has she ever been or ever will be biologically mandated to continue eating once she starts. You know, and, and, and what for you and I, it would be our alcoholic food substance. She can't fathom why this abnormal reaction would occur in us. It's not part of her repertoire. It's not, it's not part of her experiential understanding. You know, once her desire for more dessert becomes satisfied, she gets back down to solving problems on this planet. Never in her life has she had two or three cookies and found herself wanting 20. Never in her life, not one time, has she grown, let's say, stressed from work or bored with work or frustrated with a colleague that led to a binge. Never. And I can't understand why she never finishes her dessert. And, and she wouldn't understand why, why you and I always finish ours. Can she help you with this disease? No. No experiential reference point in which to understand it. No ability to analyze or to synthesize a solution. She could read the big book. She could try to serve as your sponsor. I mean, she's smart. But... What Bill learned was that only a person who has had an experiential reference point would be able to help another drunk. Page 19 has a key sentence, and it, it dispels a huge myth. First, first uh, full paragraph, three lines down on 19, it says something. It says, we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Now, now, I'm not a particularly you know, rigid stickler for, for getting rid of catchy ways of saying things if you feel it helps you. You know, I, I was on an AA meeting this morning, and they talked about um, this is a selfish program, and everyone followed suit, you know, selfish. And, and I, I got their sentiment. They, they meant I'm in the throes of the disease. I'm not treated. I got to be, you know, put the alcohol down. I got to do whatever I have to do to stay sober. I, I get that. So I'm not a stickler about that, you know, about those things. But here's one that I, I hear said all the time, and it confused me. And, and, and catchy phrases sometimes can be damaging to the newcomer because it confuses the heck out of them, and it did me. And I heard this early on repeated over and over again that abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. Now, the big book just told us that the elimination of drinking isn't an end in itself, right? In fact, it said just the opposite of that. It said the elimination of alcohol, alcohol is but a beginning. 
And why is that? Well, when the book tells me something, I'll be damned if it doesn't elaborate and, get, and answer it. The next sentence on 19 says, a much more important demonstration of our principles. You know, the steps lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. So if I'm sober only, do you suppose the state of my spiritual condition will reveal itself through how, you know, I consistently show up in my home, in my occupation, in meetings, and other affairs? You betcha, because when I was sober only, I was argumentative, I was abrasive, I was judgmental and hurtful. People would occasionally have to tiptoe around me. I was, you know, you know brimming with, with dripping with self-righteous indignation and unkind and cold and somewhat detached from your feelings. And oh, could you tell just how intolerant I was and, 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 and if you didn't follow my script, I was, you know, a cut and runner. You know, the cut and runner types, that's me. I was a take my ball and go homer. There's one for you. <laughs> that's a long one. Well, yeah, take my ball and go homer. I was a validation chaser. I chase validation. Are you a love others sparingly kind of gal? Because it's a limited commodity. See, page 20 tells us that you, you may already have asked yourself, why is it that all of us became so very ill from drinking? And doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary. We have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you're an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do, what do I have to do? Well. This next line I have underlined and like Harlan says, something should be tattooed on the inside of your eyelids. So I, I steal any of Harlan Leia's good stuff. It says, it is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. That's why we study the text. They're not gonna be vague. There's nothing vague about the program of action. We shall tell you what we have done. I remember hearing something that resonated with me. There was, a, there was a guy that said, he said something to the effect, I wonder how many alcoholics, upon finding out that they had a deadly disease and a doctor had a cure, would sit in the doctor's waiting room 90 times in 90 days or for a year or more and wait for the medicine to be administered to them, wait for the medicine to kick in, I also wonder how many compulsive overeaters, he said, do precisely the same thing concerning our 12 steps. They go to 90 meetings in 90 days, hoping to have a spiritual awakening. They never put on a jersey. In other words, they never, they never take the steps. Or they take them so slowly and methodically and perfectionistically, I guess that's not a word, but you know, perfectionistically, and, and then they eat again. And for us to eat is to die. They don't move through this the way uh, the founders, the co-founders intended it. The fourth paragraph down on page 20, now it says, now these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. And back of them, back of those observations, 
is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. And then it's going to give us, you know, some class, classifications which are critical. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have a good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. A moderate eater in our midst can come in and with good enough reason, threat of divorce, bankruptcy, intense anxiety, the doctor says, you know, go get some group support, and they come in the room and they do what my second wife told me to do, which was to cut your portions in half. That's what I did, and it worked for me. And they moderate. A moderate drinker, a moderate ear can do that. They can take it or leave it alone. But if you're not that, don't sponsor me if you're moderate. <laughs> I like you if you're moderate politically. <laughs> but if you're moderate in terms of your eating behaviors and your addictive behaviors, Please don't sponsor me. You better be hardcore here because uh, you better see the desperation of a dying, uh, killing disease. But then they go on to say that if you have a certain type of hard drinker, oh, he may look like you. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair himself physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. We see these people in our midst, in our meetings. But if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or warning of a doctor becomes operative, you know, this man can stop. They can also stop or moderate. He might find it difficult. He might find it a bit troublesome. They might even need some medical attention, but they could do it. They don't need the 12 steps. It's kind of like, um, you know, we, we have this allergy of the body. We have the twist of the mind, right, the mental obsession. And I, I, I always mention, you know, I've heard it before, perhaps if you've heard me, my daughter Elizabeth um, has a peanut allergy. And, um, you know, she doesn't, you know, need, it's deadly. It's a physical thing. It's, it, 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 the main problem does not center in her mind with peanuts. It centers in her body. She doesn't have an obsession. Nothing about that peanut allergy, not one tiny bit of her peanut allergy has any connection to her mental state, to her mind. And that's why she will never eat peanuts, even though they taste good, even though uh, she's surrounded by people that, that eat peanuts. And, and the only way peanuts will ever make it into Elizabeth's system is through accidental exposure. That's it. Because the main problem with Beth centers in her body, not her mind. You get the difference? She's got a physical abnormality. We have a physical abnormality. Most people don't have what we have. Maybe one in 20, one in 10, whatever, whatever numbers you want to use. But we have a twist of the mind, an obsession that Beth doesn't have. And that drives us back. And even if you want to take a behavior, you know, you can't stop with bulimic behaviors. You're on the line. I see you there. I'm one of you. The main problem centers in your mind, not in your body. If you had, and I'm going to use a bad analogy, if you had the flu, bad stomach flu, and you throw up, you're not driven back to throw up again, right? Because the main problem with the flu 
not an allergy, but it's an abnormal, you know, reaction. The main problem of the flu centers in your body, not in your mind. So even with your bulimic behaviors that might not involve a substance, we, we of course, we, we recognize that this is Overeaters Anonymous. We're dealing with compulsive eating, and I presume that even if you're bulimic like me, exercise bulimia or other forms, that you also fit the self-diagnosis description of having both the allergy and the obsession. And if you do, uh, you know, you can't stop with your bulimic compensatory stuff. That centers in your mind rather than your body as well. So I think it works perfectly fine for behaviors. For me, it does. You may have different opinions, but for me, it does. But then it goes on to say, but what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink, right? And so it, it goes on to talk about that Jekyll and Hyde mentality. And this is what distinguishes us. Not only that we have both the physical manifestation of the disease that ensures we're biologically mandated that when that substance enters our body, it triggers a phenomenon of craving and we are driven to eat more. But then even when we are not eating, which is the most dangerous time, to the untreated, to the untreated, they have not found the solution yet. They have not uh, employed the solution yet. To that person, the obsession is alive and well, even when it do you don't seem to think that it is. It is alive and well. And so to that person, we're going to do all the different things. We're, we're going to, you know, our disposition while eating resembles our normal, normal nature little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him, let him eat for a day, let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerous antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. And yet he's often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he's incredibly dishonest and selfish. Oh, don't we love this one? He often possesses special abilities, skills and aptitudes, and has a promising career ahead of him. But he uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the whole damn thing over his head, right, with a sense of serious sprees. You get the idea. Now. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle, with all its intended suffering and humiliation, why does he take that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of his common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? So the bottom of page 22, Bill makes an excellent point about the mental aspects of alcoholism. He says, look, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily, the allergy, and the mental sense, the twist of the mind, the obsession, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. 
And these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So it's important to identify by asking yourself, I mean, really asking yourself, if you can relate to the physical feature of compulsive overeating by seeing if your eating career reflects the inability to predict how much you're going to eat once you start. But you don't ever have to worry about that part of compulsive overeating if you never put those food substances in your body in the first place. So the main problem of the compulsive overeater centers in their mind and in their spiritual condition because their spiritual condition controls their mind, right? I know a guy, and this guy, you know, there's some people. You know, Dr. Bob helped tons of people. I know a guy in OA who's helped, I mean, lots of people, but I know a guy that's helped tons and tons of people. This guy barely got out of high school, I have a feeling. I don't even know if he had much college, to be quite honest with you. He, he lost parents at a young age. He was tripping over pizza boxes and, uh, and, and candy wrappers. His apartment was a mess. Uh, you, can, you can hear all about his story. The guy should be dead. The guy should be dead, and he's not. He lives today, a free man. And like Dr. Bob, who also should, was a guy that should be dead, went on to help thousands of other people. Why? Why? How? how? How does that happen? Well, there is a solution. Those people, both Dr. Bob, that guy, Roseanne, other people that you respect, other people that I respect, Leah, many others, many others. I shouldn't name names, but I, I can't help it. What did these people do? At some point, the big book was brought alive for them, and they um, they employed a series of sequential, I guess that's the same thing, series, sequential, and order of steps. They began implement through the implementation of these steps. And they took action after action after action of things that they did not yet believe in, in the hope and in the unlikely proposition to them. It was very unlikely, as it is for most of us, in the unlikely proposition that through that implementation of the steps, they would be brought into contact with power. That in effect, they would, like Jung says, they would have a vital spiritual experience. They would have some sort of internal shift in thinking where all ideas, emotions, and attitudes which once dominated them, whether they were tripping over pizza boxes, whether they, they had a, a wrist, a, a mental health, you know, arm, uh, wristband around their wrist at the time, whether they were like Roseanne, you know, had all the, all the you know, stuff that she was dealing with, Dr. Bob, all these different people. And the one fundamental thing, the way out for every one of them hasn't changed. It, has, it really hasn't changed. And, it, and I'll tell you something else. The Oxford Group Six Steps what do they do? See, we complicate the hell out of this thing. Are, are we any different than, the, than step number one, complete deflation? Step number two, dependence on God. Step number three, a moral inventory. Step number four, confession. Step five, restitution. 
Step six, continue work with others in need. That's the six steps of the Oxford Group Movement. And I know we've expanded these into 12 steps. And I know that you need an advanced degree and a workbook, and you need years to navigate through this, what was intended to be a simple program for a job like me to be able to implement. But we complicate it. And in the process of complication, what happens is, is we never access a solution. And then we do what I did. We blame others. Those people, those people that speak so authoritatively, those people either, I'm really, really bad at this, following what they're telling me to do, which doesn't coincide with the book, by the way, or what they're telling me is wrong. I'm not afraid to say that with love and compassion and honesty. What I was hearing oftentimes, however well-intentioned, however soft and kind and compassionate the message was, was wrong because it didn't follow the steps. It didn't distinguish between the fellowship and the program of action. Fellowship was always intended to be a place to come for love and support and education and camaraderie, but it was not to be confused with the program of action which is the implementation of the 12 steps, here's the bad news for a lifetime, for a lifetime, right? So if you're the real alcoholic and you understand the main problem of the alcoholic centers in your mind rather than your body, if it's centered in your body, you could just put it down. You don't need these steps. You don't need the steps. But the great fact is just this and nothing less page 25, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. I'm wrapping up, Leah. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. These God experiences, change, we talked about change, phenomena, a spiritual experience, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. All this was, the, it speaks to the need for change at a depth, at a spiritual depth. We need to be deflated, not knocked down, deflated before we can be brought back up and right-sized. We need to be deflated to the point of getting up. We need a complete renewal of the mind in order to recover. And there, last on 29, I'll, and there's so much more here, but in the interest of time, even though Leah has tons of time, small family, not much to do today. <laughs> okay. It says that on page 29, I have circled, it's going to give us clear-cut directions, not vague directions, are, are given clear-cut directions showing how we recovered. And these are going to be followed by 42 personal experiences. So, you know, if you're one of us, yes, I'm one of you. You can have this thing. I don't care if today's your first day in OA or if you've been in OA for 30 years and haven't experienced this yet. You can have this thing through the implementation of the steps for a lifetime. But what's got to occur, what has to occur is a change. And, it, and, and, a cha and I see 
where I'll wrap up, uh, I'll say this. What is my spiritual awakening like? It was not a static, static, you know, point in time decision. Yes, the obsession was lifted. It stays lifted as long as I remain in fit spiritual condition, which there have been times that I haven't, and that it's no longer lifted. And I've seen that. But if I stay in fit spiritual condition, it stays eradicated. But it's also important to note that the spiritual awakening for me is like a rolling process, an unfolding process where I'm given greater spiritual clarity. I see things through perceptive, a perceptive lens in which I couldn't see them before. And thus my actions change. My actions, my actions change as well. It's the most beautiful way of life. It works. It really does. And Leah, thank you for the opportunity. Sorry for, sorry for going, going long there. And with that, I pass. Oh, Larry, thank you so much for a beautiful presentation this morning. Thank you for bringing Chapter 2, There is a Solution to Life in such spectacular technical or fashion. Thank you ever so much for your service and your message of hope and possibility. Today's Share ID, 18,961. That's 18961 for today's presentation. Larry's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment, opportunity to pose questions to Larry regarding Chapter 2, There is a Solution. Now's your opportunity. Star 1 to unmute. I need your first name, including the first letter of your last name, please. Jason K. I got Jason K. Loretta H. Loretta H. Who's from Minnesota? Bonnie B. Bonnie B. Good morning. Good morning. Who did I miss? Thus far, I have Linda R. Linda R. There we go. Thank you, Linda, for your patience. Thus far, I have Jason K., Loretta H., Bonnie B., Linda R. Who else did I miss? Esther C. And good morning, Esther. Okay, that's a fine group to start with. Again, Jason K., Loretta H., Bonnie B., Linda R., Esther C. Let's get started with Jason K. Good morning, Jason Kay. Thanks, Leah. Good to hear from you and, and Larry. Um, great to talk to you and, and listen to you. Um, you made a comment about getting um, abstinent on the fellowship but not recovered. Um, I was somebody who couldn't even get abstinent on the fellowship. Could you just dive more into how long, I guess I want to sort of go deeper into that. How long can we stay abstinent on the fellowship? Does that work for everybody? Does it work for the real compulsive eater? Um, how soon should we start the steps if we are staying abstinent on the fellowship? And um, yeah, hopefully that gives you some, uh, some, something to elaborate on. Thank you. You bet, Jason. Yeah, I, I, that, that's kind of like, boy, we have these catchy ways of saying things, right? And um, I didn't say I could, I, <laughs> I certainly didn't stay abstinent on fellowship alone. Now, mind you, my point was that I, I wasn't working the steps. 
I, I early on, I didn't even realize the steps were something that you worked. Um, there weren't enough people that had worked them in my, uh, who I was exposed to at that particular time to give me clear-cut instructions because, you know, you can't have a Sherpa that hasn't, that hasn't engaged in that kind of stuff. And so I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying. Um, but, but when I came into OA with a, with, uh, a perceptive lens of, uh, you know, that, of a diet mentality, of a therapeutic sort of mentality, it seemed like, you know, minus the, uh, you know, the online point system, okay, um, you know, not knocking a commercial thing. It works for normal people, which I am not one of. Um, you know, I came in there and I, could, I, I, I started to put down some of the foods from day one and, uh, um, you know, some of my binge foods and I felt more miserable than ever. And so my point really was getting abstinent on fellowship. In other words, the very many people that walk in the rooms and they see the love and support and compassion oftentimes and the kindness and the tolerance. And through that, many of us begin to put the food down. It doesn't last. Not if, not if you have the allergy and the obsession. If you're a moderate eater, perhaps even a hard eater with a good rationale for putting it down, maybe you, you, know, you can do it longer, maybe permanently. But if you're like you and me, Jason, no, it never lasted. And with regard, in fact, and, that, and with that came a lot of shame, disappointment, more resentment, more fear, but all that coupled with, with the idea that I had nothing to numb me out from feeling those feelings intensely, so it created more misery. Now, with regard to starting the steps, you know, I always go with what, what I learned from Harlan. She, you know, I thought, where is he getting these two days? But he gave, in the big book, he gave me some, some clear rationale as to why we might, but, I, you know, why a couple of days where the book would kind of allude to that. But, you know, you know, beyond that, I would say the whole idea is is to get going quickly when there's a little bit more clarity of mind of putting the food down, which which with that clarity of mind is going to be misery and uncomfortability. Oh, yes, there is indeed going to be that, which which means that we're going to need a whole lot of desperation for someone. Someone needs to be almost drowning in the in this disease in order to sustain that suffering of uncomfortability to put the food down and not have that protection and then begin to embark on these steps, but then do it very quickly because eventually, Jason, you and I know one thing. It's not if we're going to pick up. It's a, it's a race. I, I learned that from Leah. She doesn't talk much anymore. She just does a lot by the scenes. But, but when she talked about it being a race, I never, I, I, I didn't, I didn't take that and listen to her and say, oh, she means a race. So then you can get the hell out of here. Oh no, I never felt, felt she meant that. She meant, I think, I don't want to speak for her, is, is same with Harlan, is a race to cross the bridge to freedom. At which time, then, you know, then you can begin to demonstrate and grow the relationship with your higher power and begin to change. And that's where that rolling thunder of progressive nature of of recovery begins to take hold. Oh yeah, but a race to get there first, and then you just start. You really start a new way of life. So I hope that helps a little bit. But great question, Jason. 
Thanks, Jason K., for your question. Next up, Loretta H. Good morning, Leah, and good morning, Larry, and thank you and my precious God and all of you for saving my life, Loretta H. I live in North Carolina. My question is, Larry, I came into the rooms as an agnostic, really thinking that if I could solve my food problem, I would get to where I needed to be, and then realizing that I had a spiritual malady. And it took me a while, even though I worked the steps and was abstinent. When did you get the spiritual experience that, oh my God, yes, I have this spiritual malady, and there is somebody out there that has the power to um, save me and um, have me do this program, like you said, in all my affairs? because that would be a maximum service to God and others. So when did, or do you not remember? That's my question. I hope I'm not confusing you. Okay. Have a no, great day. No, no. Yeah, thanks, Loretta. Thanks for the question. No, I, I don't think I'm confused by the question. I think it's different for all of us, but I can, I, can, I can speak about my own experience. Again, you know, many of us come here with agnostic, agnosticism, you know, without full knowledge of just what this higher power may be, although we're not closed off to it entirely. It does go on to say, and I'll come to your question, to one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic, you know, such an experience, a spiritual experience seems impossible. But the thing, there's a leading question where it says to continue as I was going means disaster, especially if you're, if you're a compulsible reader of hopeless variety, which I was sure that I was. Because to be doomed to alcohol death or, door number two, to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. So I, I feel your pain when <laughs> we came in. But we, we nonetheless, Loretta, you and I, we, we crossed that bridge. And when it came for me, I mean, I, I, it may sound almost kind of like, well, that's kind of fairy, fairy tale-ish, but I swear this is true for me. I was about halfway through step nine. <laughs> Which is really funny because, as you know, if you're steeped in the big book, you don't have to be too steeped. It, it says you'll be amazed before you're halfway through step nine. And I'll be damned if I wasn't amazed before I was halfway through. That's when it really took hold. It wasn't an epiphany moment, like a light bulb over my head moment for me, Loretta. It was more of the educational variety, but make no mistake about it, it began to feel an internal change that that really moved beyond sort of rational, you know, thinking. It was just a feeling, an intense feeling that something was underfoot here that I could not explain by science. Gosh, I'm quoting Leah a lot here, and she's cringing. But when she, when I first heard a woman that I respect so much say, this is not about science, I got it. It's not about science. The only caveat I would say is that Part of science is, that, you know, replication of results. <laughs> so in that sense, one person after another, I guess there's that scientific principle of being able to reproduce. You follow the same stuff. You'll be brought into, uh, into alignment with a higher power, access to power, and then the, the obsessions eradicated. And then I live today where God, I believe in a God that is powerful, personal to me. And I don't like the word perfect, but I – you know, something that I strive towards but will never, absolutely will never achieve. Uh, but, but my higher power is that perfect 
entity, if you will. So I hope, I hope that helps. But in step nine is when I began to get that intense view. Thank you, Loretta H., for your question. Bonnie B., star one to unmute. Good morning. Um, Bonnie B., recovered by the grace of God in Minnesota. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and Larry Kay, oh, my word. Um, yeah, just blessings to you. Uh, about 25 different questions, but I'll try to focus on just a couple. So, you know, recovered for about 15 months in program for, um, you know, close to nine years. Um, and every time I came back, the sponsors would ask the same thing. They would say, it's a step one issue. It's a step one issue. And I would say, it can't be a step one issue or I wouldn't be here. And so that's my heartbeat when I sponsor people. But I would love to hear what your take is on it because for me personally, until I came to that point where I fully conceded, and, and I can't even tell you what happened or when that happened, um, that this was going to kill me, truly. And if it wasn't physically, it was mentally and spiritually. Um, I, I, I could not cross over. And so I couldn't see what I couldn't see. And so that step one slash, you know, abstinent foods, um, getting them to that point, how do you do that with, with the people that you sponsor? And obviously you go through the steps quickly, but how quickly is that for you? And once again, thank you so much for um, your service and for this um, teaching today. It was amazing. And with that, I'll pass. Oh, thank you for your kind words, Bonnie. I appreciate that. Uh, appreciate that greatly. Um, so why is it a step one issue? See, I, I read that wrong. I, th I think I misinterpreted that because I heard that too, and it really kind of angered me. You know, it's like, wah, 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 you're back. It's step one. And I felt somewhat punishing, and, and, and I couldn't figure it out, and that frustrated me because, my goodness, Larry figured everything out. <laughs> Not so, right? But it, it had a multiplicity. I think that's a word. It had, it had a myriad of different explanations for me. When I pick up food, that's a step one issue. That, that's in the sense that I still am taking my will back. But a lot of times for me, I wasn't necessarily picking up the food. Um, I had not fully conceded. I thought fully conceded to my innermost self, which is the, you know, the, the, the basic instruction of one, was something that I did purely um, just, duh, of course I fully conceded to my innermost self. Duh. You know, I mean, look at me. I mean, I'm, you know, 100 pounds heavier. And my life's a misery. Look at all this. Okay, of course I conceded. So, so, so why is it a step one? If I, if I relapse, well, I never really relapsed. I just, I just had not, I was still in an unrecovered state. I probably had not moved quickly enough through the steps. In retrospect, I say that. Back in reflecting back, I think I had not moved quickly enough through the steps. I didn't trust the steps. I thought this was a bunch of nonsense. Quite frankly, why? Because I had not, I had no Bonnie experiential evidence that this would work. That's why we're saying take action after action after action of things that you do not yet believe in. Yes, we have to, we have to have that. So step one issue for me in terms of I had to continue to go back to the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, more about alcoholism. Those were all step one chapters to reiterate and drive home the fact that marshaled by my own will, I can hear Leah's voice, marshaled by my own will, I'm not going to be able to do this. And until which time I can cross over to the point of that level of surrender, I will do anything. I will follow these instructions precisely, not perfectly, but precisely. 
I will not have an effective spiritual transformation. Never a perfect one, but I will not have an effective one, which means, for me, sustainable in good times and bad. And so, yes, I, too, I do take my sponsees back to that if they continue to pick up the food um, or, or, or dilly-dally, you know, um, in working the steps. I mean, you know, because eventually it's not if they're going to pick up. It's really a matter of when. So I hope that helps a little bit, Bonnie, but, but there is hope. Rarely have I seen a person fail as thoroughly, thoroughly followed this path. So anyways, thanks for the question, Bonnie. Yes, thanks, Bonnie, for your question. Next up, Linda R. Thank you so much, Leah, and thank you, Larry, for your wonderful qualification today. And uh, Linda R. recovered in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Anyway, Larry, you know, I really, you know, got so much out of your talk today, especially I loved your analogy with the iceberg from the Titanic. Um, I, I was, you know, something like sparked in me. You know, that's why I love the program, because I related and identified. And, you know, I'm in program many years, and so I'm always looking for something like to, you know, keep me motivated and going. You know, I work my program very diligently. And when you said grace over God's grace over time, that kind of like caught my eye. So I wrote it down. And now my question is, can you just elaborate a little bit more um, about what it means to get God's grace over time? Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Linda. Well, I, I can just try to elaborate a little bit for what that means to me and how that's played out in my life. Uh, grace to me not even using it in the context of a religious or biblical type of thing, although I know that that word appears there in terms of, you know, uh, whatever the God of your understanding is. But uh, grace is, is that um, that this was unearned. I mean in the sense that I worked, that I rode my boat, that I chopped my wood at some point. Was I convinced by this disease, bloody enough to, say, pick up the axe? You know, I know your, your arm's broken, you're bloody, pick up the axe, start chopping, trust in this process. Yeah, okay, I, I, at some point I was brought to that. And when I did, um, um, I didn't earn this. In other words, the God, I believe in a God of grace and mercy. That's my higher power of my own understanding. One, that this is available to anybody, anybody at all. And the God of my understanding is really, in a sense, rooting for me he doesn't root for the Cubs because he doesn't care, but he, she, it, but, but, but was rooting for me because he needed me on, on, on this team so I could be of service to others in, in a maximum way uh, to, to, to God and to others around me. So how the grace unfolds over time is, yes, the obsession was lifted, and what a tremendous gift. I mean, miraculous gift. The miracles just keep coming with that, right? And uh, to be right-sized physically, what a wonderful thing. And to, to, to you know, in all the levels uh, where you see just how exhausting it was to do that violence to your body of jamming that food down your throat day after day after day and your body, uh, your unhealthy body, sure, there was a lot of grace in that being removed. But grace over time is, well, I don't know why Leia is coming to me all the time, but she said something that resonated with me one time, uh, and she, I'm going to drop off here because she's going she's to dump me in a moment here. But, but, but she said, you know, I don't, something to the effect like, I didn't have, a, you know, they didn't give me a coin, 
on the day that I started treating my partner better or something to that effect. And I thought, yeah, that's true. When I, they didn't, I didn't get a coin the day that I stopped stealing Beth's candy. I didn't get a coin when I stopped raging and people didn't have to tiptoe around me 99% of the time. No one, no one gave me a coin for that. That was God's grace over time because I don't remember the particular day that that happened. It's not part of my anniversary. We don't, we don't get up and, and give Larry a trophy for that one. It was just purely grace. And I still see it. Here's another bit of grace. I started off talking about um, my spiritual advisor this morning. You know, Jerry, <laughs> my little golden doodle. And that's grace that I see things that bear witness to who? To whose power? God's power, God's love, God's way of life, God's handiwork. That's the grace over time that rolls in like a, it's a tsunami of grace that flows in over time. And sometimes it, you know, it's, it's not stormy at all, but boy, does it pour in sometimes. We just miss it. And I get to see some of those things a lot of the time today. So that's what grace over time means for me. So I hope that helps, Linda. Thank you, Barry. Thank you so much. Thanks. Sure. Thank you, Linda R. Esther C. is now unavailable, so we'll move on. Any other folks have questions this morning? We can take two or three. Pete B. Pete B., good morning. Jody E. And Jody Elizabeth D. And Elizabeth D. Thank you. Pete, go ahead with your question, please. Star one to unmute Pete B. Thank you, Leah, for calling on me, and thank you, Larry, for your message. It was deep, heavy, eloquent, effective, and super entertaining. So my question is, what does the term, the delusion that we are like other people or presently may be, has to be smashed, mean to you? Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for your kind words. And I can tell you what it means to me. Um, other people that, you know, they, you know, in terms, in, in the context of this program, uh, in Overeaters Anonymous, other people do not carry a delusion that they, number one, can solve this problem themselves. Oftentimes they can, and they're able to solve this problem again we are we are uh a overeaters anonymous so we none of us got here just on a self-help deal i think you'd be the first to to, to agree with that this isn't like a self-help program that we're going to be uh all our instincts are removed and uh, you know all the natural kind of things that we're born with are removed no it it is to allow the obsession to be lifted and then many of us experience other changes but the delusion that I am like other people for me means I, I was mentioning one today. I was mentioning this brilliant woman at Dartmouth. Uh, she's not one of us, Pete. And uh, I, can, I can fall under the, the delusion that I'm like her. In other words, I can think my way through my own willpower and my own power of, uh, of rationalization and analysis and ability to synthesize things and so forth. And that 
delusion for me needed to be smashed because otherwise I continued to try to find an easier, softer way, but there was not going to be one of them. The big book was quite clear on that. So that delusion and how, and, and I'll, I'll just elaborate further that how does that delusion get smashed? It wasn't on a given day of a, some great epiphany where I read a, you know, from Barnes and Noble or something that, that the, the delusion got smashed, continues to get smashed on a daily basis through the implementation of these steps as laid out in the book, and I'm following these things. Otherwise, that delusion reemerges in me. That delusion is like, you remember in the Terminator, that guy, that, I don't know, T-1000, he, he's smashing down, and he's, boy, if he was a delusion, he was smashed, he was flattened. And then he reemerges, and then he's always chasing after us. That's 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 how I am, Pete. I, I, my delusion can reemerge, and it can reconstitute itself. And so I need these steps every day to uh, do the smashing. So that's what I have on that. Thanks for the question, Pete. Yes, thank, thank you. Pete. Thank you. Jody you E., your turn. Thank you so much, Leah, and thank you so much, Larry. Wow, what an amazing share. I loved your... Um, you're just bringing out that we need two things, the power of the fellowship as well as the power of the steps. That's what I understood. Absolutely. When it comes to step nine, I find myself and my sponsees doing a lot of mental gymnastics. We're, we're told we, we must make amends so long as these amends do not cause further harm. And we just, and it's easy to imagine how they might cause more harm. <laughs> so do you find that with your sponsees that they balk and try to find rationalizations for why they should not make these amends? Did you do that yourself? That's my question. Oh, thanks, Jerry. You bet I did. It, uh, they, they knew me. <laughs> I don't know. And, and, you, and, and I don't know who snuck this in my book. It was probably Harlan in relation to step nine, because at the bottom of 76, it said, it described me wonderfully. We get to nine and they say, oh, okay, no, that's great. You did four. Oh, you know what? Probably there's going to be some misgivings. <laughs> As we look over the list, I had those, Jody. We look over the list of people, business acquaintances, friends that we've hurt. We may feel diffident about going to some of them on a spiritual basis, you know, and, uh, uh, I don't know about you, Jody. I, in my lifetime, there's been a, you know maybe a few people in program that have asked to make amends to me, and oftentimes I, I didn't even see the harm. But okay, uh, but they have a sponsor, and it wasn't me. But 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 beyond, outside a program, nobody's knocking at my door. Are they knocking at yours? You know, I'm just talking in the general public of people you know. You know, uh, uh, hey, Jody, let's just think about you know, the way that I was a bit harmful to you. Mind you, Jody, not a program person. And, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm looking to uh, clean up my side of the street. I, if you'd be kind enough to allow me to, to, to make those amends, I, I, I not, you know, irrespective of anything, any interaction we had, I'm going to put that out of my mind entirely, Jody. Uh, I'm just going to go, no, we're diffident about that. So it's not a natural thing. And that is why I think until Dr. Bob made amends, I also think it's one of the issues uh, 
not to get into an outside issue, but why um, therapy and those types of things that could be wonderful and a big fan um, were not effective for me. We never got around to me making restitution for harms done as a demonstration of my commitment to change. And thus, I, because I didn't think that there was a higher power that would, that I was, uh, that I could be brought into alignment with. So yes, I had problems. I had misgivings. Um, I didn't want to go to these people, you know, and, and others don't either. They do that, what I tell them, invariably, you know, they, they do a step four. Let's say they do that archaeological dig, and they go in there and they, they get to the, 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 you know, the, the heart of the matter. What, what were, you know, where were we selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, fearful, all those things, right, resentful. Um, and, uh, but then they get to step eight. It's like maybe I, I don't, and they begin to focus on what the egregious things that were done to them. They begin to now move in their mind to step nine and how painful that's going to be and how how pride depleting that would be to approach them. And then they start start to get a little, you know, wishy washy about going to make amends. And what I tell them is make them this between you and God, it's between you and your higher power. But I'll say very lovingly, I'll tell you for me, until I cleaned up my side of the street and continue to do that with 10 for a lifetime, but until I did it in step nine, uh, I would eat again. Oh, oh it wasn't going to be if I would eat again. Oh, I would eat again. And, uh, and Dr. Bob, oh, he went to Atlantic City. <laughs> you know, he had a lot of self-knowledge. He was a wonderful guy. He was spiritual. He was all the th things. He just had a good, very good reason not to make amends, not to make restitution. Didn't want to ruin his business and, and leave his family high and dry and all that. But, but then he eventually did do that, and I did that, and I continue to clean up my side of the street with 10, and then I have access to power. So I, I'm not in the results business with sponsees. If they don't want to do it, uh, I can't, you know, I'll just send him to Harlan. And then he beats him with a stick. I think that's how he gets him to go. <laughs> so anyway, that's all I have. Thanks, Jody. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Jody E. And our final question for this morning comes from Elizabeth D. Um, hi. Uh, can I be heard, Leah? Yes. Thank you. Um, Hi, Larry. Uh, thank you. Thank you both for your service this morning. It was a wonderful presentation, Larry. Um, forgive me if this is uh, if if I'm hard to hear. I'm in my car right now. Um, I wanted to ask if you'll um, speak a little bit about slips. Um, I have um, two sponsees who've just had each had a slip and um, told me about it right away. And um, you know, I, I have a I have an idea. Um, how to work with them on the, on this, but I would love to hear your thoughts about um, about this issue of you know picking up something that's not you know on your food plan or as a trigger food and it's just contained you know to something small just once um, and it's admitted and um, how do you work with people on that? Yeah, well, I, I, my way is, is, is always with uh, compassion and love and tolerance. Now, please don't misunderstand that, that uh, I'm, I'm just wishy-washy and I let them kind of do, you know, they, they run the show. They're, they're really sponsoring themselves. No, no, the book, the book does it quite well, and I just follow the book. So if there's any debate or anything, I tell them, 
you know, uh, you seem like a, a wonderful debate. You'd probably be terrific. Uh, go take the book and have, have at it, you know. Um, so I use humor and, and those kinds of things in a loving way. Hopefully it's, it's, it's take, taken that way. But what I say with regard to slips, I always, I always speak about me. Somehow that's more palatable to people rather than kind of a you thing. And I speak about me. And, and so uh, if I hear things like slips, one of the things that resonated with me the first time I heard someone say, well, a, a slip, think of a slip and fall, it's an accident. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't have any accidental slips. I didn't never. I, I'll tell you something. Elizabeth, don't tell anyone. I'm glad it's just you, me, and lay on the line because I wouldn't want anyone to know about this. But I never slipped my way over the Dunkin' Donuts. I never just found myself slipping and sliding and just, it was always anticipated. It was always premeditated. Now, I didn't want to own up to that because I didn't want to follow the principle uh, underlying step one, which was honesty. So I would find all forms of rationalization and justification for those quote unquote slips. But it was all premeditated for me. And even when I tried to convince myself that they weren't premeditated, invariably, I was stuck with having to confront the fact that I kept doing whatever I called an accident. I keep having, I, I, boy, was I accident prone. <laughs> I was just, there were accidents every day. It was like, uh, you know, I might as well be given tickets, you know, I might as well just write myself a ticket every day because there was accidents around every corner. No, those were, you know, I had anticipatory excitement. So I talk about them that in a loving way about me because it's true. I said, you know, I, those slips, there was a lot of anticipatory excitement. There was a lot of desire of getting away with something. I'd look for ways and times in which I can get away with something. I said, can you relate to that? Sometimes they can. So I really try to speak about myself there. And yes, once again, and I say, I'm glad that some people had, you know, that there were sponsors that had the compassion and love, but the, 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 the experience to tell me about their themselves and how they were slipping and sliding with these premeditated slip and falls. And until they were willing to go through the uncomfortability of putting the food down entirely, entire abstinence, um, uh, they would not have an effective spiritual awakening that's sustainable. They just wouldn't. And it would be a fight. You know, the, the only flag that I wave today, not a flag of my pride for my, you know, it's a white flag. Every day I wave a white flag. You know, so I, I don't know if that helps at all, Elizabeth, but, but that's hopefully it does a little bit. Yeah, that that helps. That helps, Larry. And I just um, my my inclination is to is to when I'm in these situations is to, OK, where am I? Where am I? Where do I need to work on my spiritual fitness today if I have a. Sleep? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thank Larry. you. Thank you, sure. Elizabeth, for your question. Of course, thank you. To all who pose questions this morning, and Larry, it's always fabulous to spend some time together with you. Thank you for Thank a beautiful you. and very helpful presentation this morning. Certainly a gem for the archives. Today's share ID eighteen thousand nine hundred and sixty-one. Again, that's one eight nine six one. Let's close now from page one sixty-four, and you know it's from a chart. 
chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.